You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Riddle Me That, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 11, Pam Falcons. It was 1990. 32-year-old Pam Falcons was at work at the local video rental store in Greenbrier, Arkansas. Now, for those of you too young to remember this era in home entertainment, in 1990, many people still had VCRs, or video cassette recorders. These were machines which played movies that were inserted in the form of a giant rectangular cassette tape about one inch thick. Most of these machines could also record TV shows if you hit the round red record button and the TV was set on the correct channel. It all sounds very antiquated now, but a very common activity 30 years ago was for people to spend their leisure time going to the video store to physically select a movie to rent and watch at home. The video store was organized much like a library. The movie boxes displayed in the proper categories such as drama, comedy, and so on. Often the video store, which had only so much shelf space, would only have a certain number of copies of any particular movie. There was nothing worse than going to Blockbuster Video on a Friday night to rent a copy of The Shining or Friday the 13th, only to find that all the copies were already gone. Anyway, sorry for the nostalgic tangent. On Friday, February 2nd, 1990, as I said, Pam Falcons was the clerk at the Crossroads Video Store Number 2 in Greenbrier. The store was located on U.S. Highway 65, a four-lane roadway that runs between Springfield and Conway. Greenbrier was a tiny town of under 3,000 people at that time. It sits in Faulkner County and is considered part of the greater Little Rock metropolitan area, but in 1990 was quite rural and sleepy by comparison to that big city. Pam was working at the store alone, as she often did. In her capacity as clerk, she would man the movie counter, log the movie rentals and returns, replace returned movies on the shelves, and operate the cash register. But on this cold February night, Pam had not originally been on the schedule. She had agreed to take a shift for another worker who had had something come up. Pam's husband, David Falcons, arrived to pick her up at the store at 8.57 p.m. The store closed at 9, and on the nights when she was the store closing clerk, Pam would typically lock up and come out to her husband's waiting car. But on this night, she did not come out. David had called the store about 10 minutes earlier, as he usually did, to let his wife know he was on the way. She hadn't answered the store phone, but that wasn't that unusual. Sometimes, if there were no customers, Pam would pop next door to the Wagon Wheel restaurant to grab a drink or chat with the staff. David saw that the lights were on in the store, and so, finding the door unlocked, he went in. The store was empty. Pam was nowhere to be seen. 
David must have felt eerie, for his wife had clearly been there until very recently. A cigarette was still burning in an ashtray on the counter. A cup of coffee, which was still lukewarm, sat there as well. Pam's jacket and purse were there behind the counter. And the cash register was open, with cash sitting in the drawer in plain sight. After checking the store's tiny bathroom and finding it empty, and asking at the wagon wheel if anyone had seen Pam, David called the Greenbrier police from the store phone, reaching Greenbrier Police Chief Randy Crouch himself. The police force, small as it was, responded immediately, aided by deputies from the Faulkner County Sheriff's Office. It was clear to everyone that Pam had not walked away voluntarily, based on her personal items left behind and the hurried way she had abandoned her coffee and cigarette. Faulkner County Sheriff Bob Blankenship set up a command post at Crossroads Video and sent out searchers to look for Pam. The sheriff instructed people to fan out from the store and work their way outward, covering as much ground as possible. Members of the local Faulkner County Rescue Squad and upwards of 50 citizen volunteers, including friends and relatives of the Falconses, broke into groups and searched specific assigned areas within several miles of the video store. It was pouring rain that night, and the searches were finally halted at 2 a.m. They resumed at 6 on Saturday morning. By Saturday afternoon, there was news. Around 1.20 p.m., two cousins of Pam's who were part of the search party were driving down a dirt road two and a half miles south of McGinty Town, a small rural community that sat five miles east of Greenbrier along Route 225. This was near Clinton Mountain Road. They stopped to stretch their legs and, frankly, to relieve themselves. They parked near a ravine that they were familiar with, as it was sort of a dump site where locals discarded trash and unwanted items. And when they got out of the car, one of them saw what I was told he believed was a doll, like the infamous mannequin that is never a mannequin. It was lying on the muddy hillside 20 feet from the road among the garbage. He hiked down for a closer look and wished that he hadn't. It was Pam. She was clearly dead. The cousins hightailed it to the nearest house and called Jim Woolley of the Faulkner County Rescue Squad, and the investigation began. Let's take a minute to talk about who Pam was. Pamela Faye Falcons was born on September 11, 1957, in Conway, Arkansas. She grew up in the Greenbrier area and was just a nice, unassuming person. Pam was a tiny woman, one article saying she was under 5 feet tall and just 81 pounds. These are numbers befitting an adolescent, much less a grown mother of four. Pam had long, straight, dark hair, worn simply, and huge glasses that sort of dominated her petite face. She was married to David Falcons, and the two had two children together, and raised David's two children from a previous relationship. Words that were used to describe her were quiet, passive, and conscientious. Her close relative Wilma Pate told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette that Pam was a very giving person who was a devoted mother and who loved to volunteer at the kids' schools. Wilma said, quote, Pam didn't live an elaborate life of any kind. Sergeant Kent Hill of the Faulkner County Sheriff's Office, or FCSO, described her as someone who never stood out, a person who might not be noticed in a crowd. Unfortunately, someone did notice her someone who came into the video store that night and abducted and killed her. In an interesting twist, a man who would later go on to become Faulkner County Sheriff and spend years trying to solve her murder went to grade school with Pam. Sheriff Marty Montgomery recalled Pam as, quote, very petite and kind of quiet. If you didn't know her, you'd think she was real shy. But he knew Pam to have a great sense of humor. 
Pam's body was taken to the state medical examiner's office in Little Rock for an autopsy. When she was found, she was wearing jeans, a red and blue blouse, white shoes and socks, a navy bra, and no underwear. She had a red hair clip in her long, dark hair. Although Pam was found fully clothed, the medical examiner determined that she had been raped. He took swabs from her vaginal cavity and preserved them in evidence. The ME determined that Pam was beaten and killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Multiple blows had been delivered using a solid, blunt object. There was no evidence that she had been bound or otherwise restrained. Several media outlets reported that Pam had been mutilated. This was not correct. Pam was found to have multiple bloody scratches and minor cuts on her legs, but it wasn't clear where they were from or what type of implement had inflicted them. I'll address those later. However, one thing that was not released to the public was that Pam had also been stabbed in the neck. Her attacker probably didn't know this, but she was already dead when that blow was inflicted. Investigators believed that Pam had been killed right near where she was found. On the roadside next to the ravine where her body lay were found her eyeglasses, her earrings, and two barely detectable pools of blood. The evidence was consistent with her being taken out of a vehicle and struck repeatedly and then stabbed. However, investigators believed that she had been raped elsewhere. Remember that it was pouring on the night that Pam was taken, but some of her blood remained on the roadside. This led to the conclusion that some time had elapsed somewhere else, somewhere probably sheltered from the deluge, before Pam had been brought to her final resting place. Of course, the pouring rain on the night of her abduction also meant that other potentially crucial evidence, such as possible shoe prints or tire tracks, had been completely eradicated. Crime scene techs processed the video store, dusting for prints in areas they thought the suspect might have left some, the door handle, the two movies on the counter. But it was a wet night, and any prints on those items were basically useless. It didn't look like the suspect had touched much of anything or left anything behind. By Sunday night, Sheriff Bob Blankenship said the investigators were following up on a couple of leads, but they did not have a suspect. They were really starting at ground zero, with nothing much to go on. The inside of the video store was in perfect order when police arrived. Nothing was in disarray, indicating an altercation or struggle. And after tallying up the rental take for the evening, it did not appear that there was any money missing from the open register. There was no robbery. What had happened here? There were a few clues that investigators made note of. A video rental form, one of those old-school multi-ply receipt forms that help retailers keep records of customer transactions, lay on the counter, partially filled out in pen. Investigators determined that typically, Pam would fill out the customer's name first, then the date, and then the movie titles below. On this form, though, only the date was filled out. The name and address of the customer and his signature were blank. To investigators, this indicated that Pam, who of course knew the names of most of the people who frequented the small-town video store, did not know the name of the person who was at the rental counter. One of the investigators said, quote, Apparently it wasn't a local customer. The slip only had the date on it, which leads me to believe she was renting to someone who was a stranger. Of course, this information did not make it easier to figure out who abducted and killed Pam. Two movies lay on the counter which did not match any of the rental slips for the evening and had not been checked back in by Pam. They were Rambo 3 and, somewhat improbably, Mississippi Burning. Investigators believed that someone had come into the store and pretended to select movies from the shelves, possibly while waiting for other customers to leave or trying to disarm Pam and catch her off guard. 
A blue hair clip was found on the floor between the cashier counter and the front door of the video store. It matched the red one found in Pam's hair and was believed to be its mate. As detailed in an FBI National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime profile of the case, prepared in November 1990, the location of the blue hair clip, quote, seems to suggest that the initial confrontation between the victim and assailant occurred in this area. The absence of any other signs of struggle indicates that the assailant took immediate control of the victim. One would guess that a gun or other weapon was brandished at Pam to make her comply quietly with the demands of her abductor. Or, perhaps, he just grabbed her, and because of her diminutive size, she was helpless to resist. As investigators spun their wheels, Sheriff Blankenship said to the media, quote, It's hard to believe something like that happened in a small town, but it had. Within days of Pam being found, Greenbrier Police Chief Randy Crouch announced that investigators had reason to believe that there was more than one person involved in Pam's kidnapping, rape, and murder. He said, as quoted in the local Baxter Bulletin, While I can't give out too many details, I will say that we now believe two suspects were involved. Sheriff Blankenship would not comment on this, but it was clearly the official statement, as the Fayetteville Northwest Arkansas Times headline on February 5th blared, two sought in clerks killing. But there was another potential lead that investigators found promising. Sheriff Blankenship said that authorities were investigating a possible connection between Pam's murder and a burnt-out car that had been totally destroyed in a fire shortly afterwards. The charred Ford Mustang was found about five and a half miles south of where Pam's body had been found. It turned out the car had been reported stolen in Jacksonville the week before. Investigators were only able to determine this because the VIN number was still legible despite the damage to the car. There were no license plates on it. And the fire had rendered it impossible for any fingerprints to be lifted. For a brief moment, investigators had to consider whether this car fire was someone destroying evidence of a crime. But investigators soon determined that the car fire was unrelated to what happened to Pam. There were some potential witness sightings that police put quite a bit of stock in. Sheriff Blankenship said that some residents had reported seeing a tall, heavyset man in his 40s with a tattoo on his arm. No one knew who this man was, which led the sheriff to suspect that he was an out-of-towner. Greenbrier was right off the highway, and interstate travelers sometimes stopped in looking for food or other supplies. Somehow, police concluded that this man was possibly driving a vehicle that had been seen in the area that night that was not known to residents. It stood out because of its unique appearance. It was a maroon pickup with a camper top. It had been last seen near the town of Enola, 11 miles east of Greenbrier on State Highway 107. This description of the pickup truck being driven by the unfamiliar man changed over the coming days. By February 10th, a week after Pam's murder, an article in the Baxter Bulletin reported that investigators were seeking information from the public about a pickup truck seen driving slowly near the Crossroads video store. The truck being sought and depicted in a police sketch that was circulated in Greenbrier was a light blue Chevrolet. It had been seen by a patron who was at the Wagon Wheel restaurant right next door to the video store, parked in the video store lot. Now, it was not certain that this truck was connected to Pam's murder. Sheriff Blankenship said, quote, We're following every lead and that's the hottest one right now. But reports emerged that more than one witness had seen this truck near Crossroads Video creeping by at low speeds. Chief Deputy Jerry Bradley said about the vehicle sketch, quote, 
This is a composite from several interviews we've done with residents of the area. The description of the truck was fairly specific. It was manufactured between 1967 and 1975 and possibly had a white stripe down the side and blue trim. Even more distinctively, it had a homemade camper top attached to the pickup bed. The top was painted white and possibly constructed of plywood. There was a vertical door at the rear of the camper with a frosted glass window. A tailgate could be opened and closed behind the camper door. This truck sounds very distinctive and clearly had been noticed by several people thanks to its somewhat crude construction and unique colors. Bolos were issued around the area, but the truck was never spotted again. But soon, investigators were able to move beyond just a vehicle description and circulate a potential suspect description. This was based on a witness sighting that investigators believed was very significant because it fit the timeline. Two witnesses at the Crossroads Video Store on Friday night reported seeing a man enter the store around 8.40 p.m. The witnesses were Corey Richards and Tricia Stain, who were in the store renting a movie. They were the last customers believed to have seen Pam alive that evening. And when they left, the guy was entering the store. They left just after 8.40 p.m. Whoever had taken Pam had struck after that. If you recall, David Felkins arrived to pick Pam up around 8.57, and her coffee was warm and her cigarette was smoldering. Much later, her DNA was found on that cigarette. Logic would dictate that she could not have been abducted more than 10 to 15 minutes earlier. Remember that Pam did not answer the store phone when her husband called, he said 10 minutes before he went over there. If this other man arrived at the store at 8.40, he could have taken Pam as soon as Corey and Trisha left, and the timeline would fit. Furthermore, as Sheriff Blankenship said, quote, he was the last person seen going into the store that we're aware of. A Faulkner County Reserve deputy was able to use the witness description from Corey and Trisha to generate a computer sketch of the man they saw. They described him as very wet, as if he had been standing outside for a while. Remember, it was pouring that night. Maybe the guy had been standing outside in the dark watching through the window for his opportunity. The sketch depicted a white man who had a dirty, oily, and greasy look and a tattoo or grease spot on one arm. This was as described by the Baxter Bulletin, which, to my frustration, did not run a copy of the sketch in its article about the image. The sheriff's office said that the suspect could be older than the man in the sketch appeared and could have chubbier cheeks and a wider head than shown and they were pretty sure that he wasn't from Greenbrier. Based on the movie rental slip, they did not believe Pam knew him. And as Faulkner County Coroner Patrick Moore, chairman of the later Homicide Task Force on Pam's case, said, quote, because if he was just some local guy who happened to be there at the wrong time, he would have come forward by now. One thing that left investigators scratching their heads was the fact that the parking lot at the video store was very busy that night. The Wagon Wheel restaurant next door was packed, and overflow parking spilled into the Crossroads video lot. It's hard to believe that Pam's abductor managed to grab her and almost certainly bundle her into a vehicle without attracting any attention or notice from anyone. Or he was picked up right outside the video store by an accomplice, and they shoved Pam in and drove off. Either way, the crime seemed opportunistic and very, very risky. Pam's case was agonizing for investigators. The mother of four had no enemies, and they just had so little to go on. When the case went unsolved for months, the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime helped out by developing a profile of the killer or killers of Pam Falcons. 
The agency posited that the crime was carried out by two people. They had likely planned the ambush and had staked out the video store beforehand, possibly even aborting previous planned attacks. Pam presented an easy target with her diminutive stature and passive personality. She was not targeted specifically, but was chosen because she represented easy prey, the profile expounded. She was almost certainly taken away in the suspect's own vehicle and driven to a location he or they had pre-selected. The profile said, quote, The killer intended to spend time with the victim and therefore had already selected a location, which either precluded observation or was one with which he was familiar and felt secure. Speaking of things he was familiar with, the profilers believed that the killer or killers were familiar with the dump site and perhaps discarded trash there in the past. Pam's body was not visible from the road, but there was no attempt to obscure it. Perhaps he was in a hurry and hoped that she would blend in with the detritus in the ravine. Oddly, the FBI profile also posited that it likely took two people to throw Pam's body into the ravine. Since she weighed only 81 pounds, I find this conclusion to be doubtful. I can pick up my son, who weighs over 90 pounds, and I'm a 5'3 woman. Anyway, the profile stated the somewhat obvious conclusion that the crime was sexually motivated and that the killer kept Pam's underwear as a trophy to allow himself to relive the crime through fantasies. This FBI profile would turn out to be partially correct. Over the years, there were a number of promising suspects in Pam's case that fizzled out, but one suspect in particular stood out to investigators, and for some of them, he remained the prime suspect for decades. This was a man named John Mosley. Pat Moore, the coroner who would go on to lead a task force on Pam's case, told the Log Cabin Democrat, quote, Of all the local persons of interest that we've investigated, all but one has been cleared. Moore was referring to Mosley, who was raising all sorts of red flags. After Pam's murder, investigators had searched several different locations where they believed it was possible that she was held and raped before she was taken to the roadside, killed, and dumped in the ravine. And one of these locations was an old abandoned mobile home trailer on Heath Lane, off of Ridge Road. This was the kind of place that would have been known only by locals. To give you a sense of how eerie and creepy this old mobile home was, I am quoting from an article in the Log Cabin Democrat by Samantha Husius, describing the trailer. It says, The mobile home has an abandoned van in the front yard, and the paint from each is faded nearly to the point of being unrecognizable. Trees several inches in diameter have grown up through a broken step and have made the old home difficult to enter. The interior walls, floor, and ceiling are falling in, and a strange assortment of condiment bottles, books, and torn-up furniture sits inside. I'm envisioning a rusted, dilapidated trailer on cement blocks with dirt-blackened windows, litter and leaves on the floor, and a caved-in leaky roof and collapsed floor. Anyway, police had searched this dilapidated mobile home as a potential stash house where Pam could have been held and victimized. The location had been reported to police by several sources as a possible site for the rape. In fact, the FBI came in and pretty much cleaned this place out of any possible evidentiary items, including an old mattress and foam bedding. Okay, so what does all this have to do with John Mosley? 49-year-old Mosley was arrested in August 1990 in nearby Mayflower. This was just months after Pam was killed. He had been caught pawning items that he had stolen from this mobile home. It's not at all clear how police became aware of this, or how Mosley found anything worth pawning in the trailer, but anyway. Mosley did not go quietly. 
In fact, he resisted arrest to the point of fighting with the officers and running away. And when they finally corralled him and brought him in, several aspects of Mosley's life made him look like a very good suspect for Pam's murder. For one thing, Mosley grew up in the area near the mobile home. He was known to bring women there to drink and have sex. Sounds like quite a catch. He also had lived near the ravine where Pam was dumped, and evidence was found that showed that the Mosley family had actually participated in throwing garbage there. There was no question that he had been there in the past, just as the FBI profile had predicted of the suspect. Furthermore, Mosley had access to, and I suspect this means someone in his family owned, a pickup truck that fit the description of the one seen near Crossroads video. And Mosley had a pretty terrifying record. He had been convicted of being a habitual rapist and of sexually abusing children. Of course, despite these crimes, he was not in prison. Investigators obtained a search warrant and took apart Mosley's house. They didn't find anything except a hidden drawer of ladies' underwear that Mosley's wife knew nothing about. Mosley told the investigators that he liked to keep mementos of his conquests. Remember, Pam was found not to be wearing any underwear. But none of these panties could be connected to her, and to this day it is not known whether her killer took hers, they just got lost, or whether perhaps she wasn't wearing any in the first place. Investigators were no doubt shocked and disappointed when they took a blood sample from Mosley and it was not consistent with the physical evidence left behind by Pam's murderer. In fact, they tested him more than once, in disbelief at the results. They continued to believe that Mosley was probably involved. Perhaps the FBI profile predicting that more than one person had participated in Pam's abduction and murder was correct, and Mosley was the second guy. They continued to look for the man in the witness sketch with a sense of urgency. The feeling was that finding him could clear Mosley once and for all, or implicate Mosley as an accomplice. Task Force leader Pat Moore said, quote, We will solve this case. We won't stop until we have an arrest. Coming forward with information could keep someone from getting the death penalty. We don't know who did it, and we do not have tunnel vision. We are very open to new information, but the fact remains that of the names we've been given, this one, Mosley, is the only one that's not been cleared. Mosley went on to prove that investigators were right to consider him a violent threat to women who could potentially have killed Pam. He was arrested for the rape of his own daughter in 1995 and finally got a punitive sentence of 40 years. According to Kent Hill, who I spoke with about this case, he is still in prison. Investigators continued to look at violent offenders for any possible connection to Pam's case. There was a 37-year-old guy from Morgan who was arrested after an attack on Mayflower Police Chief David Hart. He had a rape conviction from 1984 in Woodruff County, but his blood did not match the evidence in Pam's case. Another local guy, David Malik of Moralton, was also looked at because he stabbed two women to death in 1989 and 1992. But he was ruled out when eventual DNA tests comparing his genetic material to that in Pam's case did not match. All in all, testing was done early on on six possible suspects, and all were inconsistent with the evidence in Pam's case. Finally, one particularly heinous criminal was briefly considered in Pam's case. Charles Albright, known as the Eyeball Killer, was believed to have killed and mutilated three Dallas sex workers between December 1990 and March 1991. He was initially also charged with a fourth such murder and had violently attacked other sex workers and faced a previous charge of sex abuse of a child. Albright was known to remove the eyeballs of his victims, who were all sex workers. 
Pam's eyeballs were intact, thank goodness. But what made Albright look like a viable suspect in Pam's case was the police certainty that Albright had other victims and his ties to Arkansas. He had matriculated at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway, he owned land in Arkansas, and his ex-in-laws lived in Perry County. Albright himself had bragged that he had many more victims, including some in Arkansas, and in fact, police there considered him the chief suspect in two murders in Arkansas dating back to the 80s. And when he was arrested in Dallas, he was driving a sketchy-looking pickup truck that matched the description of the one seen in Pam's case. Faulkner County Sheriff Bob Blankenship himself flew to Dallas in August 1991 to meet with investigators about Albright's possible role in Pam's murder. He told the Baxter Bulletin that certain things about the two cases didn't match up. Hair and fiber samples taken from Albright's vehicle were also compared with those in Pam's case found on her body. But nothing came of it. Albright was ruled out for Pam's murder, but he was eventually convicted of murdering one of the sex workers and is still incarcerated in the John Montford Psychiatric Unit in Lubbock, Texas. Basically, anyone in Arkansas or a nearby state who committed any crime that was remotely similar to Pam's was scrutinized over the years. Police checked alibis, polygraphed people, and interviewed more people, to no avail. And the case was plagued by rumors and false leads that required authorities to devote time, energy, and resources to debunking them. For example, that the pickup truck used in the crime was destroyed in a car crusher at a site on Wilson Bottoms Road. According to Sheriff Marty Montgomery, quoted in AY Magazine, People were making up all kinds of stories to impress someone with their access to inside information. We literally spent hundreds of hours chasing stories like that one only to find that someone had made it up. In 1999, with Pam's case nearing the 10th anniversary, Faulkner County Sheriff Marty Montgomery, who took office in 1997, announced a renewed commitment to solving it. That year, he enrolled in the FBI's Law Enforcement Academy, and he brought along with him the files pertaining to Pam's case. He was hoping to get some really seasoned eyes to provide some insight. Montgomery was determined to solve Pam's case not only because it was his job, and it was a frustrating and intriguing case, but because, as I mentioned, he grew up with Pam. He told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, quote, Pam and I grew up together. The fact that we haven't been able to identify a killer has haunted me. Montgomery had been the deputy on duty the day Pam went missing, and was the second official to arrive at the scene. He participated in the searches for her and the investigation from the get-go. He said of asking for FBI expert help, quote, Hopefully, we can dissect this case piece by piece, and maybe we can find that one shred of evidence to bring a killer to justice. But it was not to be. Two years later, in 2001, with Pam's case more than a decade old, the Faulkner County Multi-Jurisdictional Homicide Task Force was created on the 11th anniversary of her murder. It was manned by experienced investigators who had resolved to see Pam's case through to the end. Retired Arkansas State Police Sergeant Jerry Roberts was the first head, and then in 2002, Faulkner County Coroner Pat Moore took over. He told the Log Cabin Democrat that year that the task force had cleared about 60 locals as suspects. This was possible because by this point, they had been able to isolate the DNA of the presumed killer from the evidence collected from Pam's body at autopsy. This was in the form of semen found inside Pam. The 60 eliminated persons included people who were connected to Pam, her husband, her cousins who found her, co-workers, 
Ed Roberts, the owner of the Wagon Wheel restaurant next to the video store who knew Pam well, and so on. This somewhat advanced DNA development was possible because Arkansas was one of the first states to dedicate an entire division of its state crime lab to mitochondrial DNA analysis, using a $250,000 federal grant to buy the necessary equipment. The unit opened in 2001. Even back then, investigators recognized the potential of this revolutionary technology. Then Faulkner County Sheriff Marty Montgomery told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette that it was critical to solving Pam's case. They were out of leads, but they believed that whoever killed Pam had, quote, left an identifying genetic piece of evidence at the murder scene. Everyone was crushed when the state's budget in 2003 failed to provide funds for the unit and it was forced to close its doors. Per the Democrat Gazette, quote, Without additional funding, Arkansas law enforcement agencies will be forced to do what they did before the mitochondrial DNA testing section opened, talk the FBI into conducting the test, pay an outside lab thousands of dollars to review the evidence, or just wait until the state can afford it. It's kind of stunning that now, in 2021, this statement is still true in so many jurisdictions. Pam's case continued to haunt the investigators who had been unable to solve it. It was never declared closed, but progress on it stalled. Then in 2009, 19 years after her murder, an announcement was made that a special deputy prosecutor from the 20th Judicial District Prosecuting Attorney's Office was renewing the investigation by entering into a partnership with local authorities. Basically, the state prosecutor's office agreed to review the evidence and was provided with $30,000 in funding to do so. By this time, Sheriff Marty Montgomery had retired. He left office in 2006. He said his one regret was that he was never able to solve the Pam Falcons case. Remember the head of the task force founded on the 11th anniversary, Jerry Roberts, the former Arkansas State Police Sergeant? He was by this time a justice of the peace. And Roberts repeatedly criticized Sheriff Carl Byrd, who became the head of the FCSO in 2007, and the investigation. Roberts claimed that Byrd and others had removed items from evidence in the Pam Falcons case. I'll get more into that in a bit. But this guy Roberts, whom I don't want to speak too ill about because he ended up taking his own life, was a bit of a conspiracy theorist and suffered from an extreme case of tunnel vision with regard to the Pam Falcons investigation. He was absolutely convinced that John Mosley was Pam's killer. And hang on to your hats here because this next bit is crazy. This Jerry Roberts, who at one point was the head of the Pam Falcons task force, later admitted to submitting false DNA in the Falcons investigation. Remember when I said earlier that Ed Roberts, owner of the Wagon Wheel restaurant next to the video store, had been ruled out by DNA that was tested just because he knew Pam so well? Well, he was the brother of Jerry Roberts, and Jerry had been tasked with getting a DNA sample from his brother Ed. Jerry brought in a cigarette in an evidence bag and told the crime lab that Ed had smoked it. But really, Jerry put his own DNA on the butt. He later said he did this because his brother Ed was ill and he didn't want to make him anxious about being a suspect because he knew Ed was innocent. Ed was later legitimately ruled out by his own DNA, but still, Jerry's actions were reckless and irresponsible. And as Sheriff Byrd put it, could have, quote, created a defense for anyone who might ever be charged in the crime because they could question what other evidence was tainted. 
Despite all this drama and the elimination of scores of potential suspects, there was still no progress in the case. Pam's family had nearly given up. Her kids were grown up now. Pam's sister, Dorothy Pate, told the Democrat Gazette that for years, she would visit the sheriff's office weekly and continued to funnel to them any tips and rumors she came across. I never went to bed at night without thinking about it, she told the paper. I never got up in the morning without thinking about it. Dorothy said she finally resigned herself that if someone doesn't confess, we'll never know. She was wrong. In 2015, investigators with the Faulkner County Sheriff's Office Major Crimes Division, John Falks and Kent Hill, were assigned to take a fresh look at the Pam Falcons case. The case had seen more than 20 investigators come and go over its 25 years. Hill and his partners started from the beginning, re-interviewing everyone, speaking with some people for the first time, reviewing the entire case file, and eliminating people through DNA. It was a tedious and painstaking process. One of the people that Sergeant Hill was able to eliminate once and for all with sophisticated DNA testing was John Mosley. He tested two different samples from him to be sure he wasn't their guy. He wasn't. But this part of the case was hinky. Remember the rundown trailer where Mosley used to take his dates and which was believed to be a possible stash house where Pam Falcons had been taken? Recall that the FBI cleaned it out to test the items inside for physical evidence. And all those items, the mattress, carpet, and so on, were placed in a storage facility off-site. When Hill went to find them, they were all gone. To this day, no one knows who removed these items or where they went. Rumors, perpetuated by Jerry Roberts, were that Sheriff Byrd had removed them for some reason, although the sheriff denied that. In any event, wanting to make sure everything was tested, Sergeant Hill went back to the trailer and removed the remaining bed frame in pieces and took it to the crime lab for analysis. They didn't find anything connected to Pam Falcons. Sergeant Hill worked Pam's case for more than two years until in March 2018, under new Sheriff Tim Riles, there was a major development. Investigator Kent Hill had the weekend off. Despite his general avoidance of crime-based TV shows, he told me, his wife loved them. So they ended up watching one on one of the weekend evenings. And the show mentioned the new concept of using DNA to create a computer-generated image of the person whose DNA it was, and discussed the Parabon Nanolabs snapshot technology. Hill thought immediately of the unsolved Pam Falcons case. Monday morning, he rang up Parabon and learned that because the Arkansas State Crime Lab had ample DNA-rich physical evidence from the Falcons case, it was a perfect candidate for the snapshot analysis. Using $4,000 in funds contributed by the FCSO, the coroner's office, and the Greenbrier PD, they contracted with Parabon to develop a phenotype of the suspect using the genetic profile that had been isolated by the crime lab from the semen found inside Pam. Parabon produced snapshot images of the suspect at ages 25 and 55. Snapshot predictions showed the suspect was a white male with a fair skin tone. The man had either brown or blonde hair with green eyes and had zero to a few freckles on his face. Investigators released the image to the media and asked that anyone who recognized the man in the image please call a tip into the FCSO. Over 1,000 tips and leads came in. Kent Hill and his partner started working nights and weekends for several weeks and eventually discounted all of them. As we've seen so many times, the snapshot wasn't enough. Too many years had passed and the suspect wasn't recognized by anyone willing to come forward. 
After talking to Paul Holes for advice, Kent Hill called up CeCe Moore and asked her if she could take the case to the next level. The FCSO funded the $3,500 price tag for Parabon to track down Pam's killer. Parabon did its thing, entering the DNA profile into GEDmatch. Sure enough, relatives of the unknown suspect were in the database. Fairly close relatives of the killer had submitted their own DNA to GEDmatch, allowing Parabon to report to the FCSO investigators that there was a branch of the suspect's family tree who lived in Faulkner County. Investigator Hill was able to figure out that a woman with one of the last names that Parabon had hit on, Lewis, had lived in northern Faulkner County. She had been married a couple of times and in an earlier marriage had given birth to a son. And her son, Edward Keith Renegar, lived in the Greenbrier area, was the right age to be the suspect, fit the phenotype, and had a record. But, as we've seen in so many cases before, Renegar was dead. He had died of cancer at only 44 and he had been cremated. The medical examiner in the state where he had lived when he died, Utah, had not collected his DNA in a wet sample. There was no sure way to test the DNA of Edward Keith Renegar. The disappointed investigators decided to turn to the next best thing, Renegar's biological child. She was a troubled young woman who was involved in the drug scene in the area, and it took a while for them to find her. I'm not going to name her to protect her privacy, but her first initial is A. Kent Hill found out where A was staying and approached the house. Seeing law enforcement pull up, A came out hysterical because she thought they were arresting her on a drug-related failure to appear warrant. When she found out they weren't interested in cuffing her, she was so relieved she agreed to cooperate. They swabbed her and also spoke with her mom, Teresa, who had been Edward Renegar's girlfriend for a time. Neither was really surprised to hear of the authorities' suspicions of Renegar. As soon as investigators left, they dropped A's DNA swab at the crime lab. Within hours, the crime lab chief, Kermit Channel, called Hill and told him they had a match with 99.9% accuracy. A's father, Edward Keith Renegar, was the contributor of the semen in Pam's body. Sheriff Tim Riles held a press conference in October 2018. In attendance were several members of the Falcons family, including Wilma Pate, Carolyn Pratt, a lifelong friend of Pam's, and two of the previous Faulkner County sheriffs, Bob Blankenship and Marty Montgomery. The three-decade-long investigation had spanned the tenure of five different sheriffs. Sheriff Riles announced that Edward Keith Renegar was the primary suspect in Pam's case. Interestingly, the authorities stopped short of labeling him Pam's killer. They would state only that if Renegar were alive today, they would be building a case against him. But the only solid evidence that Renegar had killed Pam Falcons was his semen left inside her, dictating that he was the last person to have sex with Pam, which doesn't prove that he killed her. Now, it has to be said that sheriff's office officials firmly believe that Renegar is 100% Pam's murderer, but they're being cautious with terming him a killer until they manage to gather more evidence. And in fact, Sheriff Riles used the press conference as a venue to plead for the public to come forward with information about Renegar. He said, quote, In light of this new evidence, this investigation is ongoing and will continue. Edward Keith Renegar is the primary suspect in the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Pam Falcons. We need your help to solve this case. Riles emphasized that the FCSO still had a lot of work to do on the case. He said, quote, We will never stop until we put this thing to rest. We will never quit. I promise you that. 
Riles asked that anyone who may have known Renegar or have any information about the suspect or people he associated with please call the Faulkner County Sheriff's Office. Specifically, they were looking for the murder weapon, the trophies he kept, his old vehicles, etc. This request still stands today. Sheriff Riles addressed the theory that there could have been more than one person involved in the rape and murder of Pam Falcons. Remember, the FBI profile predicted that two people had abducted her. And basically, the sheriff admitted that they just don't know at this point. They could not rule out that someone else was involved, but the only DNA found on Pam belonged to Renegar. Former Sheriff Marty Montgomery was also careful with his words about Renegar. He told the Log Cabin Democrat, quote, I've been involved with this case ever since that night. This has been a 28-year nightmare with really high highs and very low lows throughout the years. I knew it was just a matter of time for technology to catch up. This is all possible with the hard work of the many police officers throughout the years. Now we know who Renegar is and that he was the rapist. And per the Democrat Gazette, Wilma Pate said that the announcement was good in a way, but that there remain a lot of unanswered questions. Personally, I think the circumstantial evidence that Edward Renegar murdered Pam is pretty convincing. Pam's family and friends said she did not know him. None of them had ever heard of him. Pam was not the wild or party type who would have engaged in illicit behavior with this man. It was out of the realm of possibility that she would have willingly left the video store that night and gone off to have sex with Renegar and then be killed by someone else. And Renegar had a history of violence against women. Let's take a look at the suspect. Edward Keith Renegar was born on May 3, 1958, and spent much of his life in Arkansas. A huge man, he was six foot four and 240 pounds by the time he reached adulthood. At the time Pam Falcons was murdered in 1990, Renegar was nearly 32 years old and was living in Needs Creek Heights, a township in Greenbrier. Notably, he lived not far from the ravine where Pam's body had been dumped. He was working at Verco Manufacturing in Conway, where he was a factory worker from roughly 1988 to 1991. Before that, he was a truck driver. Pam did not know Renegar, according to her family and friends, and they had no known association. But he had been a customer at the video store where Pam worked. Here's how we know this. The original investigators had gone through all the video store rental slips for the several months leading up to the crime and compiled a list of the names of men who had rented movies. And sure enough, Renegar's name was on the list. He had been in the store and rented a movie once, several months before Pam was killed. Perhaps he saw Pam there at that time and fixated on her. We'll never know. There was no question that the DNA found inside Pam was Renegar's and only Renegar's. And he matched the phenotype. Sheriff Riles stated, quote, Renegar has the characteristics, eye color, hair and facial build, which match the results from the phenotyping from the DNA. As predicted, his hair was dark and his eyes were green. And Renegar also had a tattoo on his right arm, likely the one noted by the couple leaving the video store on the night Pam was killed. Further, Renegar fit the FBI profile that had been put together regarding the unknown suspect. If you recall, the profile predicted that the suspect had been familiar with the dump site, took his abductee somewhere to victimize her, and was sexually motivated. All of these things are believed to be true about Renegar. Finally, investigators were able to determine that Renegar had a vehicle consistent with the pickup truck seen in the area at the time. Sheriff Riles stated that the suspect had owned a 1984 red Mazda B2200 pickup truck with a white camper shell. 
Remember the maroon pickup truck with the camper shell that was seen by witnesses? He also had access to other vehicles, a mustard yellow long wheelbase Ford pickup truck, a small gray car, and a Ford LTD. So we have Edward Renegar, whose DNA was found on Pam, lived in the area, was familiar with the dump site, drove a vehicle consistent with the one seen, and was known to have been a customer of the video store. Anything else? You bet. Renegar had a history of violence against women. Renegar's daughter, A, the one who gave her DNA, told authorities that her father had been abusive toward his two ex-wives. And his ex-girlfriend, Teresa, who was A's mom, told Kent Hill that Renegar had beat her regularly. And Hill spoke with his second wife, a woman named Jackie. She told Hill that Renegar beat her constantly. She had even obtained a restraining order against him. Jackie was granted an emergency ex parte order on August 15, 1997 in Rogers County, Oklahoma, because the court agreed she was in imminent danger from Renegar. Her statement read, quote, Edward returned home after visiting a friend and became angry with me. Even with the help of his mother, daughter, and nephew, he would not leave me alone. This protective order was lifted when Jackie agreed to the dismissal of the protective order soon thereafter. But Renegar was found guilty of domestic battery in September 1998 in Arkansas, and Jackie filed for another protective order against him in March of 1999 in that state. In August 99, another warrant was issued for his arrest on two counts of rape and one of domestic battery. I'm not certain who the victim was in this case. It could have been Jackie. But Renegar got two years in prison for these crimes. I'm assuming the rape charges were dropped and the two years was for the battery and for a failure to appear violation he had racked up in connection with those charges. Renegar also had a significant record of arrests for nonviolent crimes. In January 1992, Renegar pleaded guilty to felony burglary and theft of property in Faulkner County. He was also charged with receiving stolen property in 1991. In the late 80s and early 90s, he racked up three arrests for DUIs. Finally, in March 93, he pleaded guilty to his fourth DUI offense after refusing to take a breathalyzer. He got one year in the Faulkner County Jail for this, but he was released in the fall of 1993. Then he committed another serious crime. Besides the domestic battery cases, Renegar had a very serious conviction on his record for his attempt to victimize another woman four years to the month after he raped and killed Pam. In May of 1994, he was convicted of kidnapping a petite brunette woman in Cleburne County. I'm going to call her Susan S. or Sue. Here's what she said in her statement to Detective Jack Allen of the Cleburne County Sheriff's Office. Sue had been seeing Renegar off and on for about two years. It's really not clear whether Renegar was married at this point, but he was living in Quitman with his mom and little daughter. After one of his stints in jail for a DUI in 1993, Renegar and Sue resumed their relationship in late January or early February of 1994. On Sunday the 13th of February, he called her after an argument they had had and asked her to come back to his place. She went over, and his mom and daughter were leaving for church around 6 p.m. Sue said Renegar had been drinking all day, and he was rambling on about them getting back together and trying to make it work between them. Then they had words about a girl. It's not clear what this was about, but it may have been about someone else Renegar was seeing. Anyway, he got angrier as they argued, and finally he went into his bedroom and looked for something under the bed. He came out, and they went outside to go for a drive. But then Renegar said he forgot something and told her to wait while he went inside. She watched through the window as he made a phone call. 
When he came back out, Sue noticed that he had a bulging object in his back pocket. She demanded to know what it was. Instead, he pulled it out to show her, saying, You want to see what it is? This is what it is. The bulky object, wrapped in a white cloth, was a long knife with a six to eight inch blade. Renegar shoved it in her face, and, panicked, Sue tried to deflect it, cutting her left thumb deeply in the process. The blade was razor sharp. With that, Renegar grabbed a piece of rope that he had at the ready, forced Sue to the ground, and tied her hands behind her back. He then gagged her with the piece of white cloth that had been wrapped around the knife. He said to her, "'If you move, I'll kill you right here, you bitch.'" Sue was so terrified she was shaking. But she had managed to clench her arms as he was tying her up so that when she relaxed her arms, there was a little slack in the knotted rope. He then shoved her into her car on the passenger side, slammed the door, and headed around the car to go to the driver's side. Sue knew that this was not good. She said, quote, he was going to take me off and kill me. As fast as she could, Sue jerked her arms behind her really hard, and one arm came out of the rope restraint. She reached over and locked the driver's side door and then jumped quickly to the driver's bucket seat. Thank goodness she had left the keys in the car when she arrived at Renegar's house. That one seemingly inconsequential decision almost certainly saved her life. Shaking and panicked, Sue started the Ford Tempo and slammed on the gas. Renegar kicked at the driver's side window, missing and leaving a giant dent in the panel. Remember, he was a huge, strong man as she sped off. Sue drove straight to the sheriff's office. Sue's statement to the police shows exactly how dangerous Renegar could be. She said that he had never been violent with her before, but at that time, she said she had no doubt that, quote, he had every intent to kill me. She described the white material he had gagged her with as a piece of cloth sheeting that had been cut out of a larger piece of fabric. The weapon was a hunting knife with a shiny stainless steel blade. The rope was something he appeared to have grabbed beforehand and brought outside to where he attacked her. I think all these factors show that Renegar had prepared for the assault on her and that Sue S. is very, very lucky to be alive. She was also a very quick-thinking young lady to free herself and drive off like that. Sue told the Van Buren County Sheriff that she was eager to press charges because she was so scared of Renegar. That shows good sense. One more interesting thing from Sue's statement. Remember she said that Renegar had gone inside and made a phone call. She believed that he had been calling someone to arrange for a ride home after he drove her off in her car and killed her and left her in her vehicle somewhere. Sue told Detective Jack Allen of the Cleburne County Sheriff's Office that Renegar had a lot of friends in the Quitman area and that, quote, most of them are on drugs and alcohol. They're not good people. It's interesting that Renegar's possible M.O. was to call in help in the midst of an abduction attempt. If you recall, the FBI profile guessed that Pam's killer had not acted alone. But police seem to believe that Renegar kidnapped Pam by himself and had no accomplice. If he did have one, he left behind no DNA evidence on Pam's body. Anyway, as a result of the charges leveled by Sue S., Renegar was arrested. He eventually signed a plea agreement in which he acknowledged the kidnapping charge, which carried a sentence of 5 to 20 years. The judgment and commitment order I reviewed said that Renegar was sentenced to serve 66 months in the Arkansas Department of Corrections. He served 10. 10 months for a violent kidnapping attempt. Renegar was released in May of 1985. So what happened to Renegar after he got out of prison after the kidnapping of Sue S.? As I said, he was freed in May of 1995. 
In June of 1995, a very, very famous abduction happened in Arkansas. One month after Renegar got out of prison, Morgan Nick was abducted in Alma. The little girl was taken from a ball field during a night game never to be seen again. Those of you who are familiar with Morgan's case know that the only suspect description we have is of a somewhat shaggy white guy driving a maroon pickup with a white camper shell. And guess what? We have a photo, which I will post, of Ed Renegar with his maroon pickup truck with a white camper top. Is it possible that Renegar, who had a vehicle like that seen at the ball field, was newly released from prison and favored petite women, was responsible for the abduction and presumed murder of little Morgan Nick? Investigator Kent Hill believes that it is. Renegar being responsible for Morgan's abduction seems more likely when you consider that after being released from prison, Renegar lived in Faulkner County and commuted right through Alma on his way to school. This was because after his release, he began attending welding school at the Tulsa Spartan College of Aeronautics, Aviation, and Technology. He made the nearly four-hour drive from his home in Faulkner County to Tulsa regularly along I-40, and it would have taken him right through Alma. But there's more. As far as I know, this information has never been made public before. When he was investigating Renegar, Sergeant Kent Hill spoke with his daughter A about her father and what he had done to Pam. And A told him a story. When she was a kid, she had found a little girl's shirt in the back of her father's pickup truck, the maroon one with the camper top. The shirt had some kind of girly theme, like unicorns or rainbows or a cartoon character. A was delighted, assuming it was a gift for her. But Renegar snatched it away from her, saying it was not for her, and she never saw it again. Who did that little girl's top belong to? Morgan Nick was last seen wearing a green Girl Scout t-shirt, but perhaps she had been given this other top by someone who had her. It's worth noting that Kent Hill has contacted the Alma PD a number of times to tip them off about Renegar. He has never received any indication that they are seriously considering Renegar for Morgan's case. He has recently resorted to calling in his information on Renegar to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. If Renegar did take Morgan, sadly, we will likely never know. Her body has never been found. And if it is, the chances that there is still viable offender DNA salvageable from her remains are almost non-existent. Personally, I think Renegar is a very good suspect for Morgan's case. He was an opportunistic criminal who preferred petite, young-looking women. He abducted at least one woman, Pam, almost certainly in the maroon pickup truck, like the one seen at the ball field in Alma. He drove through the area regularly. And he had a child's shirt in his possession, which has never been explained. Remember that Renegar took a plea deal in 1999 for the domestic battery and failure to appear charges. I'm not certain when he got out, but after he was released, he moved to Salt Lake City, Utah and worked as a truck driver. He was living there with his uncle when he died of cancer at age 44 on September 5, 2002. Sergeant Hill shared with me his theory of Pam's case. He believes that Edward Renegar parked outside Crossroads Video Store that night and possibly watched Pam. He waited until the other customers in the store were leaving. He went inside and selected two movies. He brought them to the counter, and while Pam started writing the titles, grabbed her, picked her up, and carried her out to his truck. Remember, Pam weighed 81 pounds. Renegar weighed three times that. Then Renegar drove Pam to some other location to have his way with her. To this day, it is not known whether this was a solid structure of some sort or whether Pam was raped in the camper bed of Renegar's truck. But Kent Hill believes that Pam managed to escape at some point and ran off. And wherever she was, there was barbed wire. 
That's what left the bloody cuts on her legs. Hill compared a segment of barbed wire against Pam's autopsy photos and measurements, and they aligned perfectly. But her pants had no rips in them that correlated to the cuts, meaning that Pam had gotten them when she was undressed. This means it's likely that she found an opportunity to bolt, and she ran into some barbed wire before Renegar recaptured her. Then he made her get dressed, drove her to the ravine, took her out of the truck, and hit her over the head with something like a tire iron, pipe, or wrench. To be sure he was dead, he stabbed her in the throat. As we have seen, Renegar likes to use a knife, just as he did when he was threatening Sue S. Here is where I usually say, after 28 years, Pam Falcons' case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you were one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. But Pam's case remains partially open as investigators seek more information about her killer. If you have any information about Edward Keith Renegar, please contact the Faulkner County Sheriff's Office Criminal Investigations Division at 501-450-4917. Now I'd like to play for you a trailer for a podcast I think you'll enjoy called California Dreaming. California Dreaming is a true crime podcast launched in 2017 that delves into the dark side of the Golden State and sometimes beyond. Born and raised in California, I not only cover the crimes that have fascinated me over the years, but the ones that have fascinated you as well. With a backlog of hundreds of episodes and bonuses and dozens more on Patreon, you'll have countless hours to binge. And with soothing music and a unique, quiet intensity, you might just be lulled to sleep. Almost every episode is over an hour long, ad-free, with no loud bursts of music or audio clips. California Dreaming is available on all your favorite directories, so hit subscribe and give it a try. It just might be your new go-to bedtime podcast. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNA ID Podcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.